We're in week three of our Advent series called A Thrill of Hope, and we're camping out in these weeks in John chapter 1 through verse 18, and this week we are looking at verses 9 through 13, and we're going to see this morning that John is going to present Jesus as the true light, and then he's going to tell us how the world responded to Jesus when he came. And to this day, the world is still responding to Jesus. Jesus, just, he just demands a response, and that's what light does. Light, light demands a response. We always respond in some way to light, right? If you're asleep and someone throws open the blinds, you may respond by rolling over and burying your head in the pillow. Um, or if you're a morning person, you might like to wake up, grab a cup of coffee, and stand in the uh, window on a cool morning and let the warmth of the sun there hit your, hit your face. Or during the summer, if, if I'm to tell you, hey, today it's going to be bright and sunny outside, you might go, oh, man, I was really hoping for overcast uh, because it's going to be like 98 degrees today and that little extra shade helps. Or if it's the wintertime and it's January and it's 45 outside because it's our you know one cold day out of the year, uh, you might... You might be hoping for it to be a little sunny outside to help, to help warm you up. But we always have a response, right? We either like it or don't like it uh, when it comes to the light. And when I'm awake, I want light, right? I don't like to sit around in, in a dark room. And when I'm asleep, I want a cave uh, to sleep in. And, uh, but we always have an opinion or a response to the light. We're not really neutral about it. And as the light of the world, Jesus evokes response. And he demands response. And in John 1, we're going to see this morning how the light came into the world and how the world responded, and how people are still responding today. And the only way to properly respond to Jesus as the light, as the light of the world, is, is to receive him. And that's because we, we need the light. If you've received Christ today, we are going to see this morning in our text that it is a miracle to be celebrated in your life that you have received the light, and um, you've been given the highest right that could be afforded you by God today in Christ, if you have received that, and that is to be called God's child. And so look with me at John chapter 1. We're going to read verse 9 through verse 13. John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful today for your word, your word that is true and that is perfect in every way. And so, Lord, as we, as we come now to study that word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, help us to understand the word of God, to apply it to our lives. And, and Lord, we, we pray that your word would be center stage this morning and that we would see Jesus for who he is and respond to him in our hearts the only way that is proper. And that's just with complete faith and obedience. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Now, let's just walk through these verses, uh, verses 9 through 13, step by step. It's really a pretty simple passage. We see the entrance of the light. Then we see two responses to the light. We see rejection and we see reception. And truthfully, we can divide the world into two types of people, right? Those who receive the light and those who reject the light. And the children of God, the text tells us, are those who have received the light. In fact, that, that are the only people who can call themselves children of God or those who have received the light of Christ. And we see God's children are born not of a human means, we see in the text, but of God. And so walk with me. Number one, notice the entrance of the light. 
says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So he refers here to Jesus as the true light. You'll see in John's gospel, he likes that word true. Um, Jesus is the true light. He's the true vine. He's the true bread from heaven. True, true, true. Over and over again, you'll see that. When John refers to Christ as the light, he is pointing to the fact that, as we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus reveals God to us. He makes God known. God has most clearly revealed himself and made himself known in Jesus Christ. Yes, there's general revelation in, in all of creation. And yes, there is revelation from God in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets reveal things to us about God. It's his very word. However, the supreme revealing of God is Jesus Christ come to earth. True light come from heaven. Now, the word true here is highlighting the fact that Jesus is the genuine light, not false. So it's, it's, as a, it's contrast. He's true as opposed to being false. He is, he's the real thing. He's, he's genuine in a world full of false messiahs and false hopes. We need to know what's real. And One person noted how this word can also point to the dependability of the light. Because false messiahs and, and false lights and false life givers are not dependable. Jesus is dependable because he is genuine, because he's really the light. He's not an imitation. He's not fake. You know, maybe the most well-marketed company in the history of the United States, I would say you could argue is Coca-Cola. They have marketed themselves exceedingly well over the course of the you know, 100 plus year history of their company. Listen to some of the advertising slogans they've had over the years. and um, You won't remember the first few. I don't think there's anybody that's going to remember this one. In 1886, their first slogan was drink Coca-Cola. That's pretty simple, right? That's just, you know, right there. In 1904, it was delicious and refreshing. A little better. 1905, this is one of my favorites. Coca-Cola revives and sustains. That's a pretty big promise. <laughs> um, you know, it'll, it'll also eat a nail, I think, over the course of 24 hours. But, um, in 1924, it was refresh yourself, right? That actually sounds kind of modern. In 1952, what you want is a Coke, right? That's pretty simple. 1969, some of you will remember this one, it's the real thing. And then the one that I remember and that I think of, when I think of Coca-Cola, I think of this as their slogan, and it's a play off the 1969 one. In 1990, when I was 10 years old, they came out with this one. You can't beat the, you know it, real thing, right? You know, you can't beat the feeling. That was later. You can't beat the real thing, right? That was, uh, and and to this day, when I think of Coca-Cola, I think of the real thing, or you can't beat the real thing, as opposed to the imposters, right? And so they want you to think of them as the true cola. And they've done a pretty good job of selling that to us because to this day, when I go into a restaurant and I say, do you have, uh, I'll have the Coca-Cola and they say, we don't have Coke, but is it okay if we give you a, I die a little bit inside. We all do. (laughs) And um, no offense to Pepsi. Can I have tea, right? You start, you begin to, maybe water. You can't beat the real thing, right? Coca-Cola wanted people to know and embrace the fact that in their mind, they have the best soft drink product, and they have convinced a lot of people of that. And so, and they were comparing, right? We're the real thing. We're genuine. This is the original, right? This is the true, dependable one. All the others are like imposters. That's what Coca-Cola wanted to convince us of. John's making a stronger statement than that. He wants you to know that he's making a very strong statement that in a world full of people and things that promise you things, only Jesus is the real light the real hope giver, the real revealer of God and his plans and his purposes. You can't see and know God apart from Jesus. You can't connect with God apart from Jesus. 
This is a, a life and death sort of statement. He is the true, the exclusively true light. There are not many ways to God. There are not many paths to know him. All the religions of the world are not going to coexist in heaven. I don't mean that as rude, but listen, that's what he's pointing to. He is the true light. Everything else is false and imitation. Only one true light. And if you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his purpose for your life, if you want to know meaning and purpose, it's found and God himself is found in Christ and in Christ alone. The good news John shares is that Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. He's speaking of his incarnation, him being born of a virgin and coming in and taking on human flesh. The true light has entered the arena of the world. He's speaking here when he says the, the light gives light to everyone. One commentator noticed he, that he was speaking, he's pointing to the potential of this light. I like what D.A. Carson says. He says, what's at stake rather is the objective revelation. This objective revelation shines on every man and divides the race, the human race. In other words, the world either rejects or receives this objective revelation of who God is as he's revealed himself in Christ Jesus, the true light. See, John says the, the very one whom he's already told us made the world came into the world. And that's an amazing statement. Other religions say a lot of things. But only in Christianity does God come to us. The creator comes and walks among the creation. This tells us something else. The, the fact that the light came to the world reminds us that the world needed light. Right? We, we know since the fall the world has been darkened by sin and unbelief. We ignore, we rebel against, we wrestle against, and we try to fight God. The world is a dark place in need of the full light of the revelation of who God is. And that came in the person of Christ. If you know Christ this morning, you have access to the true light, the light of God. We have no excuse as believers in Jesus to live as though we're still in the dark about God because we're not if we're in Christ. We have light and we're called to walk in the light since we know God. We're called to live like we know him. So the light has entered the arena. The, the, we see the entrance of the light. And secondly, we see the rejection of the light. Yet the world did not know him. Came into the world, the world he made, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This shows us just how sinful the world is. Think about it. God in the flesh walks among creation, and the creation misses out. How is that possible? How is it possible that still today people do not recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Well, it's because sin has, has blinded us to this truth. He goes on to say, he came to his own this is most likely means the land of Israel. And he says to his, to his own people, speaking to the Israelites, to the Jews, to, uh, more generally to humanity and more specifically to the Jewish people, that Jesus took on human flesh and walked among the people that he had given the promises to, that he had given the law to, that he had given the prophets to, and yet they did not receive him generally. They didn't welcome him, but yet he was largely rejected by them and by their leadership. You, you, when you look at the Gospels in the New Testament, you'll see while many people followed Jesus, he was rejected by many, and especially by the Jewish establishment, by the leaders of that day. The, the religious leaders did not believe him to be the Messiah. And that rejection is fully realized on the cross when the Israelite leaders and the Romans together conspire to kill the Son of God. By and large, we see him rejected by humanity. Both Jew and Gentile have a hand in him being on the cross. But at the same time, from God's perspective, we see this was God's plan all along. It's the way it had to be. He went to the cross because it was God's plan that his son die on the cross for sinners like you and me. 
So you and I can be saved when we repent and believe the gospel. Now, a couple of things here about the rejection of Christ, as John talks about it here. First, seeing this rejection, him not being received by his own, reminds us that Jesus Christ identifies with the rejected. If you've ever been mistreated, if you've ever been turned away from, forsaken, if you've been cast aside by family or friends or society at large, you've ever felt that way, if you've ever suffered unjustly, Jesus Christ knows your pain. He knows even greater pain, for he came to his own creation, his own people, his own covenant people, and was rejected by them. He even went to the cross and bore our separation from the Father that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus knows all about what it means to be reconciled and to suffer unjustly. Listen, if you don't think Christ loves and cares for the rejected of this world, you've got to reread the New Testament. Jesus knows rejection. He came to identify with people like that. He came to make a way for us to be accepted by who matters most and really all that matters in the end, and that's God. And we should be a people that love the rejected and the hurting of this world and offers them Christ. But we also see here in this rejection that we need to know that people are still rejecting Christ. It's not just that they did. People still are rejecting Christ. People refuse to come to the light. Our sin blinds us to our need for Christ. And our sin prevents us from having an appetite for Christ. For instance, due to our sinfulness, many times we think we're good and, and that we don't need a Savior. So we're blinded to our need. We compare ourselves to our neighbor who may not even go to church or maybe their life is falling apart because of sin in their life. And that's who we compare ourselves to. And we think, well, I'm not that guy or I'm not that gal. And our lack, of our lack of thinking we are good enough is really due to our own sin. We aren't good at all compared to who we're supposed to compare ourselves to. Christ, God in the flesh. So many times we're, we're blinded by our need. And so people reject Christ because they don't think they need a Savior. And we're also blinded by it because, of our, because our appetite is not for Christ. We have no desire for Christ. We, we like life the way it is. We like calling the shots. We like pursuing our heart's desire. We like life being all about us. We don't really have an appetite for change. We have no appetite for holiness that, brings, that, that Christ wants to bring into, our, bring into our life. We have no appetite for Jesus to be Lord over our life. I remember as a kid, you got to a certain time of the day, and if you were to ask for a cookie or a piece of candy, you would hear, no, you'll ruin your supper. Yeah, yeah, you'll ruin your supper. You can't have that because then you won't eat this. And now I find myself telling my kids, no, it's too close to supper. And I know my kids because I know that all they need is one little thing and they're not going to eat anything for them, particularly the oldest. And what we're saying when we tell people that, when we tell our kids that, it's like you don't want you to get filled up on junk because then you won't eat the, the stuff you need for nutrients in your body. And similarly, in the same way, we're, we're so, humanity is so full of our sin and our hearts are so darkened by it. We're so full of our sin. We have no appetite for Christ. In fact, it's even worse than that. We have no nature to even want to receive him. It is by nature that we reject him. Our nature is such that we're spiritually corroded and even spiritually dead, the Bible says. And that we have, we have nothing to do. We have nothing to do with truly receiving Christ apart from the miracle of God. Listen, the light has come. He came. That's Christ. And all we have to do to reject him is to not receive him. To, to not receive him is to reject him. There is a myriad of reasons you or your friends or family may reject Christ or may have rejected Christ up to this point. We've all rejected him at some point. But the only way to know God and to know forgiveness is to receive the light. 
receive Christ, receive the Word made flesh. Now the third thing, that's what we see here, this is where we're going to spend a little more time, is the reception of the light. Look at verse 12. Let's read it again. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What a promise for those that have received Christ. Those that receive, instead of rejecting Christ, get to be called God's children. It's not everyone that's God's child, only those who have believed or received Christ. God is the creator of every person in this, on this planet, but he is only the spiritual father of those who repent and believe the gospel of Jesus. We are not all God's children in that sense. Creation, yes, he's the father of all, but spiritually, no, no, not at all. You have to be born into his family, adopted into his family. So what does it mean to receive him? Well, he says, but to those who received him, you hear that a lot if you grew up in church, right? Just receive him into your heart. And that's perfectly fine language. However, we got to know what it means or it can not be fine language. We got to know what it means to receive him. It doesn't mean if you simply pray a prayer, that means you're automatically saved. That's not the point. You don't see that in John's gospel here. God's concerned about your heart and he desires heart change, right? And he doesn't just require... He's not just looking for us to recite magical incantations and say words. I'm all about praying to receive Christ, but the point is we have to understand what's going on there, we, that we're receiving a person, right? Not just saying some words. And to receive Christ, it literally means, literally in the vernacular, to take him, right? It means to take him into your life, to reach out by faith and grab hold of him and to receive him, a, 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 an actual person. He explains what he means when he says it this way, who believed in his name. So what does it mean to receive him? It means to believe in his name. You have to believe in his name. It has to be genuine, heartfelt faith in the name of Christ. Now, you'll see in John's gospel in chapter 2, there were some people that kind of on the surface level believed in his name, not in a genuine way. It's got to be genuine, John wants us to know. But the genuine belief John speaks of, it commits itself to Christ and follows Christ. People experience life change and a new nature, right? When they really are truly followers of Christ. So it's, it, this, this belief in Christ, it, it's follow, true, genuine belief is followed by fruitfulness. But to believe in his name, we have to understand in the Bible, a name was a really big deal. So we see that. We say, yeah, all you got to do is say, I believe in Jesus, right? You believe in his name. It's not at all what, he, what he's talking about. When he says, confess the name of the Lord, he's not just saying, like, Jesus is a magical word. Right? And because we end our prayers in his name by saying, in Jesus' name, or we speak his name, that that's some sort of magical word. word, word. We're not dealing with sorcery here. It's, it's talking about his person. See, in the Old Testament, the name embodied the very personality and the totality of the person you were talking about. So when he says, you've got to believe on his name, you said, you said you've got to receive him for who he is. Who? Christ. The, the, whole, the whole person. You've got you've to receive him for who he is and who the New Testament reveals him to be. In other words, you can't edit Jesus. People try to. You make him man but not God or God but not man. Or you make him a sinner like us. You're not believing in his name. Just because you stuck his name on that person, that's not who he is. He's God come in the flesh. His name includes who he presents himself as, the sinless son of God, the God-man who died for sinners and rose physically and bodily from the dead. Anything short of that is not believing in his name. We've edited. Somebody might say, oh, pastor, I believe he rose in my heart. But it's hard for me to believe he literally rose from the dead. I mean, it's 2018. But see, that's not believing in his name. That's not, that's not his name. 
That's not his reputation. That's not who he is. We can't believe it as we have edited it. See, a lot of people have no trouble believing in Jesus as long as they get to shape him into their image. People want a Jesus that makes perfect sense to them as they are in their sin. They want a Jesus that will save them from what they want to be saved from and affirm them and what they want to be affirmed. And I get it. We are broken people and broken people do broken things. Sin makes us do crazy things sometimes. But we have to take Jesus as he is or we do not receive him. We do not believe in his name. He's God. He's, he's not a recipe that we can just take some things out of. He's not a movie that we get to edit. You know, I was thinking about this week. One of the most famous um, rock and roll songs of the last 50 years is a song called Freebird, right? By Leonard Skinner. And most of you have heard of that song. And for those that haven't, man, you've missed out. But anyway, one thing, is, one thing that song is most famous for, though, is, is real simple. It's famous for being long. <laughs> Not, that's one of the things it's most famous for. Like if you, if you hear a, a, a band do it in concert, it might take 10 or 12 minutes for them to do that song. Actually, I looked it up. The demo version of the song was 11 minutes and 9 seconds long when, they, when, when Leonard Skinner cut the demo. The album version was cut down to 9 minutes and 6 seconds. The single was only 4 minutes and 18 seconds. And guess what the radio edit was? 3 minutes and 31 seconds. It got shorter and shorter, and here's why. They were fitting it to the audience. The wider the audience, the shorter it needed to be. The radio wasn't going to give it 10 minutes of time. They might today, but they weren't going to in 1970-something. The average listener wouldn't either, so they trimmed it up. And what I'm saying is this. We don't get to trim and edit Jesus for the audience. We don't get to decide what makes him more palatable. We do that with a lot of things, but we don't get to do that with Jesus. We have to believe in his name as he's revealed in Scripture. Not our version of it, not our edit of it. That's really just our name with Jesus plastered over it. That's all it's done. We've made an idol. We take the original long-cut version or we don't really have Jesus. We don't get to edit him to fit the educated. We don't get to edit him to fit the uneducated. We don't get to edit him to fit, to fit the rich or the poor. We just preach and believe Jesus as revealed in the New Testament. And when this happens... Amen. When this happens, something happens. He gives us the right, he says, the right to be God's children. Listen, we have no right. No right. The word there can mean power or authority. We have no right, no power, nor authority. We have no right to be in God's family apart from faith in Christ. We don't have the power to get in. We don't have the authority to make that call. Only Christ has the authority and the power to give you the right to be called a child of God. See, we forfeited that right when we sinned, when we rebelled. We placed ourselves outside the family of God. Adam and Eve's story is all of our story. We've inherited their sin nature and we've chosen to sin just like they did. And so we have to be adopted into the family because we're outside the family apart from Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. And a, see, a child doesn't have a right to go and just say, hey, you're adopting me. Right? They don't, they don't get to do that, right? And, and even, even a mom or a dad, they don't even just say, hey, I'm adopting you. They, a government has to be involved and a judge and all this sort of stuff that has the authority to say, now you're in this family. And in the same way, we need a higher authority that makes us a part of God's family. And that right, it says, it can only be bestowed by Jesus. Now think about that. Jesus has given you the right that you didn't have to be in God's family and a part of God's family. That's something to think about. And it's something to think about later. We, we should offer thanks and praise to God for the fact of we have no right to call ourselves God's or God's children apart from Jesus. And that right he bestowed on us. 
Notice how one becomes a child of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our becoming God's children, he is saying, is, is like adoption, yes, but the right is restored by a higher authority, yes, in Jesus, but it's also like a birth. We have to be born into God's family. He says it's not of blood, though, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of the man. Now, this is all saying something similar, these three phrases. He's strengthening his argument. He's saying you can't get this from being in the right family or being in the right race. You aren't born into it physically. It's not of blood. The will of the flesh speaks here to sexual desire, but not in the sinful way. He's saying it's not that way. It doesn't happen that way, guys. It's not the will of man or the will of a husband. He's saying it's not the natural or physical realm at all that produces this. This was big in a day when many Jews thought, I'm born a Jew and therefore I am God's child. And Jesus taught not all who are Abraham's offspring are God's children. It's not enough to have Abraham's blood. You have to have Abraham's faith. And let me bring it home to us. Say, I was born in a Christian family. Awesome. That's great. I grew up in church hearing the gospel every Sunday. Great. My daddy was a preacher. Sweet. So my kid's daddy is a preacher. That's awesome. None of that will make you God's child. None of that will save your soul. You cannot be born a Christian or even really raised a Christian. You can be raised in a Christian home. But you have to be born again a Christian. That's the only way it happens. And at the same time, if your family was atheist, if your parents never took you to church, if your dad was a serial killer or a serial adulterer, none of that will keep you out of heaven. You too can be born of God because it ain't got nothing to do with your family, nothing to do with your race, nothing to do with where you came from. It has to do with the sovereign act of God upon your soul, bestowing His grace upon you. What makes you a child of God is not something we produced or something we did or something that comes from our family. It's a miracle of God. And look, I share the gospel with my children. I pray daily and ask God to save them. But I know that I am powerless to produce it. And so are they. I can't save them. I can't make them believe. They have to be born of God. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Jesus would say it this way in John 3, verses 3 through 7, a couple of chapters later. Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And everybody's like, No. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. Or is in John 1, born of God. Or you also say, born of the Spirit. These are all born, of, born from heaven. All these are synonyms to say, it's not something we produce, it's something God does in our heart. Listen, friend. Salvation is not our doing. Willpower got you into this mess, but it ain't going to get you out. It, it's not our doing. No amount of human determination, no amount of willpower and diligence or hard work or good works or moral uprightness and fortitude, no amount of that will save me or save you. You've got to be born of God. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. It's God's doing, not our doing. And when salvation visited you, what you brought to the table, what I brought to the table, if you're a believer this morning, was sin. That's all I had to offer was my sin. And he took it, right? 
And he gave me his righteousness, right? That's what happens at conversion. Everything else was a miracle. Your faith doesn't happen apart from grace. He's saying those that believe in his name are those that are born from God. You need help. You need his grace in your life. You need his power in order to become a child of God. You can't produce it in your own flesh. I like the way Peter says it. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who caused it? He caused it. Part of his mercy. How much did you contribute to your first birth? Right? Nothing. Not a thing. You didn't introduce your parents. You didn't know your parents. You were simply a were not. That's what you were before you were a were. You were a were not. And that's what we are outside of Christ. We're were nots. We're... And, and then we're born of God and we're we were's and ours, I guess, you know. It's all grace. Salvation, salvation being all of God and none of me and none of you, by the way, is good news, really. You say, really? Why is that good news? Because we're sinful and we're weak. And God is holy and God is strong and God is more loving than you are and God is good and, and we're not. And I'd rather be depending on God than me. And if I can do it, I can lose it. If I can be strong enough, then I can be weak enough to lose it. But if but God does it in me, then I can't undo it. Those who are believing on Jesus, those who have received Christ, are those who are and who have been born of God. Born from above, born from heaven, born of the Spirit, born again. Old saying I used to hear in church growing up, if you are born once, you die twice. Meaning you die physically, and then you suffer eternal death, separation from God forever. If you're born twice, you only die once. See, everyone here today needs to know, have I been born of God or not? Not of church attendance. Not of my mom or my dad's will. Not of good works. Have I been born of God? How do I know? Do I rest in Christ alone for my salvation? Does my life bear the fruit of one who is born of God? Does my life show tangible evidence that I'm God's child? Have I received Christ? Am I believing? Am I resting in Him alone? If not, you ask, what can I do? Only believe. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. Right? That's the old hymn. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you. Now, we don't do the saving. We do the trusting. And even that's of grace. And if you are a child of God this morning, you need to praise God that you are God's child born of Him. God, you say, I've never seen a miracle. You are a miracle. You're a walking miracle. Now let me ask you, what's a child supposed to do? I can tell you what they're supposed to do and I, as a parent, I can tell you what they do and they're not always the same. <laughs> they're supposed to submit to the authority that God's placed them under. They're supposed to honor and obey their parents. A child is under authority. And you and I live under authority. We are under the authority. We're supposed to be yielded to the authority of God, our Father. We didn't have the power to yield before Christ. We didn't have the desire to truly yield to God before Christ. But in Christ, our desire and our appetites are new. And we have a new power as God's children and dwelt by the Spirit of God to yield our lives to the Father and to walk with Him. And believer, we need to remember we aren't yielding ourselves to an abstract authority. 
God has a real personality. He's a real being with real thoughts and feelings towards you. He's not just a king. He's not just the creator. He's not just the judge. He's all those things, but he's all those things and more. He is your father, right? And when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't teach us to just pray, oh, creator in heaven, or oh, judge of all the earth, or oh, king in heaven. All those things are fine and dandy, but Jesus said, no, when you pray to him, you get to say it like this. You can say, our father who art in heaven. The king is your father. The creator is your father. The judge is your father. His heart towards you is good. He loves you. You yield your life to the one who loves you and wants what's best for you in a way that no human power ever could. You know, as a dad, I get these passages now when I think about being God's child and him being our father more than I think I did six or seven years ago. I can't possibly imagine having anything other than the best of intentions towards my children. I want them to succeed. I want them to do well. Now, sometimes that means I have to insert some pain and some discipline into their life, right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows. I may have to correct them from time to time. I may have to let them struggle through some things a bit. But the intention is always to make them better, to help them to grow up, to help them to mature. And now listen here. Here's the shocker. And I'm a sinner. So I'm very imperfect at that. And my discipline is very imperfect. And it's not always evenly meted out as it should be. And it's not always perfectly just. And listen, God will confront your sin and he will discipline you. And he will let you struggle. But all his intentions are for your good. If you and I want what's best for our kids, how much more does the holy God of heaven want what's best for you? If I know better what my 13-month-old needs, or for that matter, my 3-year-old or my 6-year-old, how much better does God, who is holy and infinitely wise, know better what you need than you do? It's really kind of arrogant for us to think we know better for our children because they're children and for us to somehow think God doesn't know better for us that we somehow are able to handle things on our own. When, he, when we're somewhat more wise, we're somewhat smarter, and we somewhat have more knowledge when our children are small, but God is infinitely more wise and infinitely more loving and infinitely more committed to our good than we could ever be. Let me ask you this morning. Is your attitude right now towards God, does it show that you believe he's a loving father? Or maybe, are, are, you, are you angry with God this morning? Are you cold and indifferent towards God? What, what's your attitude towards God say? Does it say, man, does it speak to the fact I am his child and he is my loving father? And are you yielding to your loving father like a child should yield to a father? Are you trusting him with the real stuff in life? Right? The real stuff, like stuff in your marriage and your kids and your relationships and your finances and your friendships and your job and your struggles and your failures and the stuff you don't want your pastor to know about. Are you trusting him in those areas? Are you purposely following his direction in your life? Or are we being, if I can say it, are we a little bratty sometimes? Right? We all are sometimes. And if that's you this morning, if you're being a little standoffish towards the things of God and a little cold and indifferent towards God and you're not running to Him in obedience, trusting in Him, knowing what's best. If that's not what you're doing this morning, by all means, let this text remind you of the miracle God did in your life and to call you back to your Father and to submit and to yield your life in every area to Him. 
to trust Him, to obey Him. And friends, the tr if the true light has come in Christ, right? If, if, if that's the truth, the true light from heaven, the true light of God who reveals God and who He is, if in Christ He has come, then there's really only two choices, right? We either reject Him or we receive Him. So that would be the other question this morning. Have you received the light? Have you received Christ? Have you believed on His name? That He is the Son of God who has come in human flesh to die on the cross for your sin and be raised from the dead so that if you would repent and believe the gospel, you can be saved. Have you truly, are you resting in anything other than Him and His name this morning? And if you have received Him, wow, the Bible says you're God's child. And it all happened because of a miracle. You have been born of God. And we should rejoice, and we should worship, and we should obey with joy. Living like a child of God. Let me ask you this morning, if you haven't received him, I encourage you today, receive him. Receive him by believing on who he is as the son of God who died in your place and rose again. And if you have received him, I encourage you to obediently, joyfully, Walk with your Father who has caused that great miracle to happen in your life. Let's pray.